This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal, and I am an associate professor of managerial economics and strategy at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Jordi Blanes y Vidal, who is an associate professor of managerial economics and strategy at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. Today, we're going to talk about his paper, Face-to-Face -face Communication in Organizations, which is co-authored with Diego Batistón and Tom Kirchmeier and appeared in 2021 at the Review of Economic Studies. Jordi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jordi. It is a pleasure to finally have been invited to this wonderful program. So we have actually wanted to invite you for a long time, but somehow our schedules have never really matched. Whenever I was free to host the podcast, you were busy and could not come as a guest, and vice versa. Whenever you were free to come as a guest, I was busy and couldn't be the host. So it is fortunate that we have finally managed to resolve this uh, situation. I have wanted to invite you, and this is a personal confession, also because you are my favorite economist, my favorite person really. Admittedly, you are not the smartest, you are not the most creative, you are not the most industrious, you are not very well connected, you are not the most fluent. Stop it. You are not the most precise in your writing or the most careful in your empirical analysis. Enough. You are definitely not the best looking economist out there. And yet something strange happens that whenever you say something or make a comment, I find myself every time in complete agreement with you. Oh, that's really nice to hear. There is something about the way that you think that seems to click very well with the way that I think. This is great, but the scary part for me is that you know exactly all the holes in the paper that we are going to discuss. This is true, but at the same time, you may be able to anticipate my questions and be ready with answers. So it's not clear who this situation is going to benefit. Can you tell me in a couple of minutes what this paper does? So we study the benefits and costs of face-to-face -face communication in organizations. This is obviously a topic that is highly relevant in the last years, as the pandemic has prevented many workers from being able to engage face-to-face -face with their colleagues. What we do in this paper is to study in what circumstances the ability to communicate face-to-face -face will matter. We do this by proposing a simple model on how face-to-face -face communication affects productivity and then studying a setting in which workers engaged in teamwork are exogenously able or not to communicate face-to-face -face with their teammates. We find empirically that workers take advantage of the ability to communicate face-to-face -face following the predictions of this relatively simple cost-benefit model. So to be clear, this is not a paper that studies working from home. We don't specifically talk to the working from home literature because in our empirical setting, the workers are always in the office. What happens in our setting is that sometimes two members of a team are sitting right next to each other. And in other occasions, they're both in the office, but in different offices located miles away from each other. So being located right next to each other then provides workers with an additional communication channel, 
which is the ability to talk face to face. And what we study is firstly, what is the main effect of having that channel? And secondly, do the workers use that channel in a way that follows economic intuitions? So the idea of studying communication channels and how agents use them is actually very prevalent in organizational economics. We have models from Bolton and Dewatry Pond, Van Sant, Garicano, others. Do you test the predictions of any of these models? We don't really speak to these models directly. It is true that there are lots of models of communication in the theoretical literature, but the empirical counterpart has really lagged behind, mostly because the ability to measure empirically when and how agents communicate is just really difficult to find. The model that we have in mind is just a model that takes seriously the idea that communication takes time for the sender of the communication, and that this time could maybe be used better elsewhere. Then we see empirically whether workers internalize that. Okay, so tell me what the setting is so that we can fix ideas about what is going on here. So this is the Greater Manchester Police, specifically the Operational Communications Branch, which is a unit in charge of answering 999 calls. This would be 911 in the US and allocating officers to the corresponding incidents. There are quite a few elements involved in this response, but the most important ones are two workers, which we can think of as being part of a team because they are jointly in charge of dealing with a call. The first one is the handler and the second is the radio operator. So the way that this works is the following. The handler picks up the phone whenever a call comes, talks to the member of the public, writes down the details in an electronic log, allocates a grade or level of urgency, and then creates the incident. Then when the incident is created, the operator sees it in his computer, reads the details and allocates an officer based on availability and the characteristics of the case. The operator is called a radio operator because he's on the radio channel communicating with the police officers uh, on the ground. So the first thing that comes to mind is that dividing tasks between two different workers seems like a very inefficient way to run this organization. I can see how there are going to be delays that come from the time that it takes to communicate the information that the handler obtained to the operator who needs it for the allocation. Why not have just a single worker be in charge of both picking up the phone and then allocating the officer? So that's possible. I'm sure that some police organizations run in this way, but there is a trade-off here. Think first about the fact that Manchester is a very big place. It has 2.6 million people. This means that there cannot be a single radio channel with all the officers and all the operators talking in there, because otherwise it would become a mess. Instead, the officers specialize in a neighborhood, in patrolling or responding to calls uh, in a neighborhood, and there is a single operator in that radio channel talking to the officers from a specific neighborhood. A, a single operator so that the officers don't have like conflicting orders, let's say. 
So this is going to mean that the operators are geographically specialized. On the other hand, it makes sense for the handlers to be able to take calls from anywhere in Manchester. Imagine that there is a football match, let's say outside Old Trafford, and there are suddenly lots of incidents and lots of people calling 999 from Old Trafford. If the handler and operator are the same person, that person is going to be really busy. The call queue is going to become enormous and lots of incidents are going to go unreported or it is going to take a long time for the calls to be answered. That's something clearly that we want to avoid. If the handlers are specialized, that higher load from around Old Trafford on the call queue can be jointly taken by all the handlers in Manchester. So this is really the main logic uh, to separate the jobs. Okay, so we have two workers. The first one learns something, communicates it electronically to the second one. The second one processes the details and sends an officer. All this is, again, done electronically. How does face-to-face -face communication play a role here? So the thing about the electronic log is that it contains a lot of information. It is also not necessarily well structured from the perspective of the reader of the log because the handler is writing as the call progresses. And this means that it's going to take a while for the operator to extract the specific information that is needed to determine which officer to send, what information the officer needs, and so on. We have, in fact, um, a few quotes in the appendix about things that the handlers and operator told us in terms of these benefits of face-to-face -face communication. But just think of one thing that one of them said. Uh, they said, and I'm paraphrasing here, have you ever tried to argue by text? They said, the other person is always going uh, to misinterpret something. This is the same here. In the electronic form, the nuances of the case are often going to be unclear, but if the handler and operator are in the same room, the operator can go to the handler and ask for the specific details that are critical to this allocation decision. Okay, so that's fine. I can see how face-to-face -face communication can help. Are they able to communicate face-to-face? -face? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. This is really the idiosyncrasy of the way that the communication branch was organized, specifically prior to 2012. Handlers and operators, again, before 2012, were distributed across four buildings in Manchester. Just think of one building in the north of the city, another building in the south, and so on. The operators in a building were responsible for allocating officers in the area around the building. So the operators in the north building we're allocating officers in the north. Each operator allocating officers to calls that came in a different neighborhood of the north. Now, the handlers were also split across the four buildings. But as we were discussing earlier, the handlers could take calls from anywhere in Manchester. Okay, so let me anticipate this. Because the handler take calls from the same call queue, the match between the characteristics of an incoming call and the handler that is assigned to the call is random. So this is what you are going to exploit for identification. Let me say here that I love this type of identification strategy. Devoted listeners to this series of podcasts can find discussions of this in episodes 21 and 26. 
Yes. Incoming calls are deterministically matched with operators. That is, if I call from a certain postcode, 100% of the times, the operator that deals with that call will be the one in charge of the neighborhood that includes the postcode. But the fact that the handlers pick up the calls on a first-come, first-served basis means that sometimes an operator is reading a log written by a handler that happens to be in the same room, and sometimes the operator is reading a log written by a handler in the other part of Manchester. Okay, so I can see what the empirical strategy is here. Let's imagine that all the balancing tests reveal that collocated incidents and non-collocated incidents are identical on average, what happens when the handler and operator are in the same room and can communicate face-to-face? -face? So the first effect is a positive effect on the radio operator, who, remember, is the receiver of this face-to-face -face communication. We find that same room incidents in which face-to-face -face communication is possible are allocated faster, specifically allocation time is 2% lower. What is allocation time? Allocation time is the time that passes between the moment that the incident is created and the operator sending an officer to the scene of the incident. If you want, is the closest proxy for the processing time uh, on the part of the operator. Another measure of delay will be response time, which is the time lag between incident creation and the officer arriving to the scene. But essentially, everything that I'm going to tell you about allocation time holds also for the response time. Okay, so why do we care about allocation time? Is this something that the Greater Manchester Police somehow wants to minimize? Yes, the police cares about this allocation time for several reasons. The first one is that there are nationwide targets about how quickly calls will be allocated and responded to. If a police force doesn't meet these targets, then it's going to get into trouble with the national government. To the extent that workers internalize that objective, then that will also be something that they care about. The second is that these measures are important determinants of public satisfaction. That is, when the callers are asked about their opinion of the police or their satisfaction about the way that the call was handled, response time is an important predictor of that and we have some evidence in the paper about that. The third reason is that there is another paper by distinguished authors, Blanis Vidal and Kirsmeyer, that... Really fantastic paper, if I may add. I agree. Really fantastic paper that shows that the likelihood that crimes are solved is higher if the police takes less time to respond. So we have the baseline findings in which being collocated helps individuals communicate better. This is, of course, very intuitive. After all, you and I are collocated and we can communicate very well. Well, we are not actually collocated. Of course we are collocated. This is just a natural corollary from the fact that we are inhabiting the same body. Well, we may be collocated along the space dimension, but we are not collocated along the time dimension. And this is undoubtedly creating some barriers to communication here. For instance, when you ask a question, we have to wait in time until it reaches me, and then after my answer, we have to reverse the time dimension so that you are able to understand it. Oh, that's true. I understand now this unnatural feeling that the interview is giving me, quite unlike any other that I've had in this series. But at least we're face to face. You mean to say face inside face? 
Okay, so we have the baseline findings in which the two workers can communicate face-to-face. -face. If they can do that, they will work faster. One advantage of the special relation that we have with each other is that I have managed to get hold of all referee and editor reports from this paper, including from journals from which the paper was rejected. Now, these are highly confidential and well secured in your computer, but I have got hold of them and found that one editor and or referee said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I believe that if I can also reach out to someone else within person in addition to electronically, I will get through a little faster, but how should I think of that overall? I'm left unsure. Well, what I will say here is there are lots of things that we economists believe that should be true in theory, but that when we go to the data, they happen to not be there. This is the first time that the causal effect of face-to-face -face communication has been identified. The effect is small, but in some sense, it is surprising that there is an effect at all, because this is a relatively standardized setting with experienced workers for which one would expect that electronic communication works pretty well. The second thing that I will say to that main um, referee and slash or editor is that the main contribution of the paper is coming really later in our discussion in showing that there is a trade-off between cost and benefit and that workers understand and react to this trade-off. Here is another quote from a desk rejection. Interesting case study, but contribution not high enough. What do you say to that? Outrageous, ridiculous, an inverted pyramid of people. I completely agree. These editors either don't know what they're doing or they didn't bother to read the paper, except obviously the editors that accepted it. I have to say here that these were negative comments, but the paper was very well published in one of the top five journals in economics. Thank you. We were very happy with the outcome. So did you get a salary raise? No, but I'm still holding hope that my excellence will be monetarily recognized. You know that anything that we can do from the Visible Hand podcast to contribute to this cause, we're willing to do. Thank you. I know that you have my best interest in mind. So you have talked many times about the trade-off here, the trade-off there. So far, we have only discussed the benefits of the ability to communicate face-to-face. -face. What are the costs? The benefits come mostly to the operator because he has better and faster information that he can use to allocate the officer more quickly. The costs are borne, on the other hand, by the handler. Think about what the handler does after officially finishing an incident. He can go back uh, to the uh, call queue and take one of the calls that are waiting there to be answered. In fact, there is a button that he can press to say that he's ready. And then the phone will start ringing immediately if the call queue is not empty and he has to answer that call. Alternatively, he can press not ready if he needs to make a couple of notes or take a break or, importantly for our purposes, maybe answer the questions from the same room operator about the incident that he has finished creating. So the cost of communicating face-to-face -face is that the handler is spending some time doing that, and as a result, he cannot go back to the queue and relieve pressure on the calls that are accumulating there. So can you measure this empirically? 
Yes, we have the time at which a handler presses the button ready after finishing a call. And what do you find? We find that handlers that have just finished same room incidents spend more time not ready than handlers that have finished incidents in which the operator is not in the same room. So on the one hand, this provides confirming evidence that they are communicating face-to-face -face with the operator. And secondly, this reveals that there is a cost to communication. So just to be clear, all these things that you have mentioned so far are coming from regressions on a sample of incidents where the independent variable is a same room dummy and the regression controls for handler and operator fixed effects, our fixed effects, and a few more controls. Anything else that you want to say there with respect to the identification of these baseline effects? Yes. One thing to say is that in 2012, this arrangement that I have described whereby handlers and operators were spread across four buildings, ended. All the handlers were sent to one building and all the operators were sent to a different building. So one thing that we can do is add the sample of incidents of this post-period, post-2012, in which there never was face-to-face -face communication, and see whether the exact same pair of hand and operator are associated with lower allocation time and higher not ready time in the pre-period when they can communicate face-to-face -face, as opposed to the post-period when they were not able to communicate face-to-face -face anymore because they were not anymore in the same building. So I presume that you are mentioning this additional test because it is indeed the case that the results support your baseline effects, no? Otherwise, you will have kept quiet about this test. Well. As any good politician would say, I don't answer questions about hypotheticals. It is indeed the case that the same pair of hand and operator are associated with a lower allocation time, higher not ready time, in the pre-period when they are able to communicate face-to-face, -face, as opposed to the post-period when they are not able to communicate face-to-face -face anymore. Okay, so we have now the existence of a trade-off. How do you show that the workers understand this trade-off and react to it? So we have a model that guides the way that we think about this trade-off. The model is a bit complicated, in some ways more complicated really than it needs to be, because it's a queuing theory model that is replicating uh, the fact that in our setting, the workers have to deal with an incoming flow of problems. The problems come first to the first worker, following what in the, that queuing theory literature is called an NM1 process, and then the problems that are processed by the first worker go to the second worker. There is some algebra involved, but the basic predictions of the model are really quite intuitive. Think about the relative importance of the cost and benefits of face-to-face -face communication. The benefit is that the receiver of the communication can work faster, and the cost is that the sender of the communication has to work more slowly because of the time communicating face-to-face, -face, which takes from the time that he can devote to answering calls. One thing immediately that is quite intuitive is that if the senders are typically quite fast and the call queue is typically empty, then the cost um, of communicating face-to-face -face is low and there should optimally be more communication. If it is instead the operator who is 
typically really fast, then the benefit of communication is lower and there should be less of it. So is that something that you find? Yes. When the inflow of cases that a radio operator is dealing with is higher, then the ability to communicate face-to-face -face matters more in that the difference between the location time of same room and non-same room incidence is higher. On the other hand, when the handler is dealing with a higher inflow, the importance of face-to-face -face communication is lower. Okay, so, so far you are talking about costs and benefits of communication in terms of quantities, that is, in dealing with more or less cases. But presumably not all cases are identical to each other. For instance, if the operator is dealing with a crime that is taking place right now, then clearly the incident is going to be more urgent and the benefit of dealing with it faster is higher. Did you look at something like that? It is appropriate that you focus on the operator for this example that you just gave, because the operator, uh, for the operator, we know whether the case is urgent or not. So we know this because the handler has picked up the phone and talked with the caller, so they already have that information. On the other hand, the cost of communicating for the handler is the cost of having cases spend more time in the queue. But the handler doesn't know how important these cases are. So yes, we look at heterogeneity in terms of the current case, but we cannot look at heterogeneity in terms of future cases because the expected importance of these future cases is always the same. We find then that crimes that are ongoing as the handler picks up the phone are crimes for which the effect of being able to communicate face-to-face -face is higher. Similarly, for some types of incidents, the importance of arriving fast is higher in terms of public satisfaction. Again, we find that for these types of incidents, face-to-face -face communication matters more. Okay, next prediction about the relative cost and benefits of communication. So one thing that we have in our dataset is not just the hundred uh, whether the handler and operator are in the same room, but how close they are sitting relative to each other. This matters because these rooms are quite large and it may not be the same for a pair to be sitting right next to each other compared to sitting on the other end of the room. One way to think about this is that as affecting the time cost of communication because the time that it takes to walk around the room and go back to your desk is eating into the handler's ability uh, to deal with calls. I can see how you will get information on the actual computer monitor from which a call is dealt, but how can you have variation in the distance within the room? Don't they always sit at the same desk? So this comes from the fact that handlers hot desk. Some days they sit in a particular desk, and other days they have to sit somewhere else because maybe their preferred desk is occupied. So a for a pair of handler operator, we can see whether on days when they are sitting closer together, the location time of the operator is faster. And this is indeed what we find. So I'm surprised that you find something here. I would expect that such short distances don't really matter so much. We were also surprised, but it turns out that the effects are quite strong. Being less than two positions in distance is associated with a very high effect but being on the other side of the room is essentially equivalent to being on the other side of Manchester. I guess one question here is about the endogeneity of the sitting allocation. It may be that this year I am friends with a specific operator, so if I sit next to him and, and 
I communicate a lot with him. But in that case, the interpretation is not that distance matters, but that friendship matters and that friendship also affects distance within the room. Is there anything that you can do here? So not a lot. Uh, we can do a couple of things. First is that we control for the fixed effect of the hundred operator and semester pair. So now your concern will have to be that on days on which I happen to like a particular operator, I sit next to him. Because we are really controlling for the pair at the year level. The other thing that we do uh, is that we can see whether these results are identical on days on which the room is very busy. And the handlers have very little choice in terms of where to sit when they arrive to their shift. We find that these effects uh, aren't changed on really busy days in which uh, the potential for endogeneity is lower. So we have been talking so far about these two workers as if they were maximizing the same objective function. There is no conflict of interest here, really. They are internalizing each other's objectives perfectly. Is this how you model them? And is this a good way to think about this production process? So to answer your second question first, broadly speaking, yes. There are no high-powered incentives in these settings, as this is really common with most organizations in the public sector. Because of multitasking, a variety of other concerns, workers are paid a fixed wage, and that's mostly it. However, there are some career concerns. For instance, handlers can belong to one of two pay grades. They start at the bottom, and if everything goes well, they move to the top one after a few years. So one thing that we find is that handlers that have just moved to the top grade and presumably cannot move further up are associated with a higher effect of face-to-face -face communication. One other thing that we find is that handlers that are in the month of their performance review are associated with a lower effect of face-to-face -face communication. We don't ha really have a full-fledged strategic model among other things, because putting a complicated strategic model on top of a uh, succession of MM1 queuing theory models will really be too hard. But you can think of the main model as one in which the handler determines the amount of communication, and there is a parameter that captures how much the handler internalizes the benefit to the operator. And having just been promoted and being uh, in the month of the performance review are proxies uh, for this parameter. So this relation between the behavior of handlers and their career incentives kind of presupposes that they are rewarded by focusing on their own metrics instead of helping the operators. Is that something that is true in this setting? So we don't have causal evidence on this, but we have some correlation. We find that the likelihood that the handler is upgraded to the higher pay level is negatively correlated with the time that they spend not ready during the previous year. So at least from a correlational perspective, there seems to be some evidence there. Okay, so it seems that these people are very sophisticated in the way that they take advantage of collocation to communicate or not. I guess a natural question here would be in terms of what we have learned from study this very specific type of workers and production environment. So remember that I mentioned at the beginning that the theoretical literature on communication in organizational economics was enormous and by now quite sophisticated. The first conclusion from our paper is that at least in our setting, 
you don't really need out of sophistication. A simple cost-benefit model explains pretty well the way that these workers seem to be behaving. In some sense, this is also the result of the fact that, of course, we're studying a relatively simple production process. Just two workers, the first one has something to say to the second, but maybe not the other way around. But at least in this setting, cost-benefit is kind of all you need to explain communication patterns. So what about in terms of external validity? Clearly, as you just said, this is a very specific organization. Not sure that the numbers here can be extrapolated to the other settings that we care about. So this is true, but if you expect that the number that you get from a paper is going to extrapolate to all other settings, then you're going to have to throw 90% of empirical work in economics. I told you earlier that in some sense it was surprising that we find a positive number at all, because this is a relatively standardized production process in which the problems are relatively homogeneous. Other settings say like the contracts that lawyers have to write or the problems that academics have to solve, also working as teamwork, uh, are going to be less standardized and their face-to-face -to -face communication potential is going to be even more important. On the other hand, in other settings, maybe the importance of having to move fast may be lower. So there are arguments for the number, the specific number in other settings being either higher or lower. The typical thing that people say when they are asked about external validity is that the baseline estimate, the actual number, may not be the same in other settings, but the qualitative patterns may be easier to extrapolate to other settings. You have a lot of heterogeneity results. Is this something that you also want to say here? Well, actually, yes. Thank you for mentioning it. The qualitative patterns may be easier to extrapolate to other settings. Thank you, Jordi, for coming to the program. It is a pleasure for me, and I hope to be invited again. My guest today has been Jordi Blanes Vidal. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanes Iso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>